Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Orwell. Please note, in future episodes, I'll have information about the release of a novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about George Orwell. Orwellian is a word that is used with ever-increasing frequency. Defined as a manipulation of ideas or language to mislead the public into acceptance of government deception, repression, and brutality, it is derived from the work and perspective of George Orwell. Orwell is best remembered today for two novels— Animal Farm, an allegory using farm animals to satirize popular revolution and totalitarian government, and 1984, a prescient description of a future that has descended into a repressive, dystopian hellscape. Both of these novels were published in the five years preceding the author's death and brought him great popular acclaim. However, Orwell was already a prolific journalist, essayist, critic, and commentator, whose work appeared in hundreds of publications. Today, many of his concepts and symbols have permanently entered into the popular consciousness, and he remains one of the most respected writers of the 20th century. Eric Arthur Blair was born in Motahari, Bihar, India, on June 25, 1903. He would not assume the pen name of George Orwell until the age of 30. Blair was the son of an English civil servant father and a mother who was the daughter of a French colonial entrepreneur operating in Burma. Blair's father, Richard, worked within a government agency known as the Opium Department, an entity that presided over the production of the drug that was chiefly exported to China, a lucrative British monopoly. Richard Blair was paid very modestly and toiled in the remote northeast region of colonial India, in a very dreary existence. A year after Eric's birth, his mother returned to England with Eric and his older sister. She was intent on providing her children with a proper education, and although Richard Blair accompanied them back to England, he soon returned to India and had very little personal contact with his son for much of Eric's early childhood. Eric's mother and her two children settled into an upper-middle-class existence in Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, comfortable but not wealthy. Eric Blair's first academic experience occurred at an all-girls school in a Catholic convent of French nuns. As his mother was French and his older sister Marjorie was already attending, this was considered a reasonable enrollment. At the age of eight, he entered boarding school at St. Cyprian's, but his family lack of resources was underlined when his tuition payment was handled by an uncle. 
Eric spent five years at St. Cyprian's, rarely returning home, his mother by now also employed as a civil servant. As George Orwell, the writer composed a memoir of these years, which published posthumously, indicated great unhappiness at the school. Many of his peers were quite wealthy, something that left Eric filled with alienation and resentment. His family life remained strained, his father retiring from the civil service in India and returning home with a pension in 1912. By then, Eric's sisters, including a younger sister, Avril, were in boarding school in France, and his only interaction with a father he barely knew occurred on school holidays. Although they remained together, Eric's parents conducted a relationship that could only be described as frosty. Despite his alienation, Blair ultimately performed well enough to gain access to first Wellington and then Eton, focusing on history and already with an interest in a career as a writer. Britain's involvement in World War I also developed feelings of cynicism and skepticism that at Eton erupted into full-blown defiance, not only for him, but for many of his fellow students, horrified at the slaughter on the continent. Typically, Eric Blair's matriculation at Eton should have been a stepping stone to higher education at a university, possibly even Oxford or Cambridge, but two harsh realities intruded on that potential career path. The first was money, his parents unable to afford tuition at these prestigious institutions. Only a scholarship could provide the funding necessary for such an undertaking, and Blair sensed how difficult that would be. The second issue was an ongoing, unrequited romance that Eric had pursued with Jacintha Buttercombe, the daughter of a neighbor of his parents in Oxfordshire. As a teenager, Blair spent a great deal of time with Jacintha and her siblings, having high-minded discussions about H.G. Wells, literature, and Eric's literary ambitions. Initially, he shared cryptic poetry with Jacintha, hinting at his infatuation to which she remained completely unresponsive. He would eventually propose in 1922, but by then it was clear that Eric was not heading to university, but instead to a posting in the Indian police, most likely in Burma. Jacintha turned him down. Two years older and completely focused on academic pursuits, she had no interest in such an undertaking. Years later, it would emerge that at some point in the couple's interaction, Eric's frustration resulted in an overly aggressive physical advance that not only ended any potential romance, but almost severed their friendship. Even today, the catalyst for Eric Blair's employment in Burma remains unclear. Classmates do recall an interest in the region, and his father's career in India and his mother's connection to Burma most likely made him aware of such a position. But for an alumnus of Eton, to apply for such a position was literally unprecedented. Perhaps he was attempting to blot out a failed romance. Perhaps it was a feeling that he had little alternative. But in October of 1922, Eric Blair, age 19, set sail for what was then known as Rangoon. His rigorous academic background and intelligence allowed him to sail through the exams to qualify as an assistant superintendent in the Indian police force. At least the good news was that his salary was higher than his father's current pension, and the position would send him to one of the remotest parts of the empire, perhaps providing a sense of adventure that was currently absent in his button-down academic existence. The voyage to Burma took four weeks on board a typical British steamship of the era. Stops in Marseille, 
Port Said, and Colombo preceded his landing in the Burmese capital. From there, he was destined for the police training school in Mandalay. Although the setting sounds dramatic, it was not long before Eric Blair was regretting his choice of occupation. The training was tedious, his comrades nowhere near as well-educated and intellectual, and it wasn't long before Blair found himself spending most of his free time in his room reading, avoiding the social clubs and card games of his contemporaries. Mandalay itself was a regional city, nowhere near as sophisticated as even Rangoon, uncomfortably hot and dirty. Blair sent a few letters to Jacintha, filled with complaints about his situation. She reasonably responded by suggesting that if he was unhappy, he should quit, and when he maintained that it was an impossible admission of failure, she stopped writing altogether. Orwell spent five years in Burma. His participation in administering British rule turned him completely against imperialism, which he eventually came to view as utterly unjust. Initially assigned to Moulmain, the fourth largest city in Burma, his participation in the shooting of a rampaging elephant precipitated his reassignment to a town at the end of the Burma Railway, deep in the remote jungle. The elephant was the property of the largest timber company in the country, and its owners made their unhappiness evident at the highest levels of the police department. Eric Blair's health also suffered as a result of his time in Southeast Asia, chronic bronchial issues exacerbated by tropical dang fever. He must have been relieved when he was officially granted the customary six-month leave on July 12, 1927. Having saved a significant amount of money while in Burma, he had vague plans of pursuing a career as a writer. Blair's return home paused in Marseille. He gradually made his way northward via Paris, possibly wanting to savor French sophistication after years in the jungle. Perhaps he was also dreading informing his parents of his intent to quit his job and head in a very murky direction. His physical appearance alone was a shock. Tall, gaunt, and thin, with a mustache and a haggard look, he was no longer the bright-eyed student who left as a teenager. Predictably, his parents were horrified by his intention to leave his position and peppered him with questions on how he thought he would survive. To escape this oppressive atmosphere, Blair attempted to reconnect with Jacintha Buttercombe. Her parents welcomed him for a visit, and he interacted with her brother and sister, but Jacintha was not present, an absence that went unexplained. Eric could only presume that she still was upset and didn't wish to see him. In fact, in his absence, Jacintha had gotten pregnant out of wedlock by a man who fled from the situation, and she went to London to have the child that was subsequently raised by her aunt. The truth about this incident emerged many years after both parties had passed away, but Eric always assumed that Jacintha was not present because of him, and he also understood that any relationship was now impossible, especially when he twice spoke to her by telephone, and she refused to even see him. He finally moved on, presuming that he would never have contact with Jacintha again. Despite his parents' disapproval, Eric continued with his plan to become a professional writer, deciding that relocating to London was his first step in getting this process up and running. Although some of his former Eton classmates were already establishing literary and professional reputations, Blair deliberately avoided any contact with such individuals, too proud to ask for help. 
with a few basic outlines for a novel and a complete lack of any real political ideology, he at least was able to secure cheap rent through a family acquaintance. Eric Blair's writing career began in an unheated attic room at 22 Portobello Road in the Notting Hill section of the British capital. This environment was so chilly that the writer was said to have to warm up his hands over a candle before getting to work. With zero actual literary connections, he at least could attempt to compose book reviews and peddle journalism pieces while he organized the more substantive novels and material intended to establish him as a, quote, great, unquote, writer. Despite his lack of focus, Blair's experience in Asia and his awareness of the struggle of the lower classes prompted a desire to truly observe life at society's lowest rung. Dressed accordingly and adopting a fake identity of a once wealthy but now disowned bum, he embarked on excursions that he called tramping, merely to gather material for some yet undetermined project. He spent time in the various spikes or flop houses in the poorest sections of South London, recording his experiences and perceptions in diary form. Paris in the late 20s beckoned to bohemians from all over the world, and Eric Blair was no exception. Presuming correctly that his dwindling bank account would last longer in France, in early 1928, he decided to continue his tramping ways across the Channel. Aged 24, he could still pass as young enough to be a student, his latest assumed identity. After a brief stint on the couch of his Aunt Nellie, his mother's sister, and her communist husband, Adam George, Eric obtained his own room in the Latin Quarter and immersed himself in the street life of the left bank, interacting with working-class characters of every variety. He did complete a novel during this time period, which went nowhere, and also journalism containing political and literary analysis, or accounts of his current experiences. He started to publish regularly in October of 1928 through March of 1929, until he contracted serious bronchitis, requiring predictably bleak hospitalization in a charity hospital. Blair would also incorporate this experience into his literary output, eventually depicting a cold and unforgiving environment in an essay entitled How the Poor Die. Despite sporadic publication and teaching English, the struggling writer was now actually indigent as opposed to acquiring research. It was this economic predicament that finally forced Blair to seek employment, no matter how menial. It was through another resident of his rooming house, a Russian emigre, reduced to waiting tables, that he was hired as a dishwasher in a luxury hotel. Despite the squalor and demeaning working conditions, Blair adapted and absorbed this and a subsequent restaurant dishwashing job into an eventually marketable experience. Nevertheless, a successful publication in a British journal about a day in a flophouse got him thinking that it might make more sense to return home, closer to potential markets for weightier projects. Although Eric Blair's return home coincided with the Christmas holidays, the holiday cheer quickly wore off. Despite his perceptible literary progress, he still was not capable of supporting himself and a great disappointment to his parents, especially his father. By now, the couple were a fixture in the small, coastal town of Southold, and Eric, tall, gangly, and scruffy, was somewhat of a local oddity. 
While he struggled with various odd jobs, mostly as a tutor or even caretaker for children to assemble his tramp experiences in Paris and London into some coherently publishable manuscript. After several rewrites, the best he could do was a kind but emphatic rejection from T.S. Eliot, acting within his day job capacity as an editor at the prestigious publishing house of Faber and Faber. In frustration, Blair sent the manuscript to a family friend named Mabel Fears, telling her to dispose of everything but the paper clips. Mabel and her husband, Francis, spent summer vacations in Southold and had met the Blairs, including Eric, who was much more open with her about his professional frustration and ambitions than he would ever be with his own parents. Mabel believed that Eric Blair was quite talented and also considered herself a very literate individual. Well-connected, she personally forwarded the manuscript to an agent friend who, after some persuasion from Mabel, agreed to seriously consider it. Figuring the book as a perfect fit, the agent forwarded Blair's work to Victor Golance, a left-wing publisher of socially conscious material. Golance was enthusiastic but made several demands, including a change of title to which Blair sardonically suggested Confessions of a Dishwasher. Ultimately, the book was released as Down and Out in London and Paris. Eric Blair quickly made any requested editorial revisions and submitted a request of his own. He informed his publisher that he did not wish that the book be published under his real name because he thought Blair sounded Scottish, but probably he was actually concerned that if the book flopped, it would further embarrass his parents. That the book focused on a life as a vagrant or as the most pitifully employed menial worker also prompted him to request the pseudonym George Orwell after a river quite familiar to him, located in southeast England. Officially published in January of 1933, the book received generally positive reviews in many high-profile literary journals and newspapers. Its American publication prompted attention from the New York Times and the New Republic. Although the book only sold sporadically, it was an important milestone for the formerly obscure Eric Blair. With a new literary identity and greatly enhanced self-confidence, he began work on a novel concerning his time in Burma. Unfortunately, his newfound literary success did not translate into financial freedom, and the real-life Eric Blair was forced to take a job as a teacher in a small, low-profile private school. At least Orwell's social life improved, but in a way that prevailed for the rest of his life. Despite her marriage, Mabel Fears was not above the occasional fling, which her husband ignored, and eventually she became involved with Orwell. The author was also pursuing various other women situated near Southold with varying degrees of success. All of these interactions seemed to have a clumsy, dysfunctional aspect that left both parties ambivalent and frustrated, the women probably understanding that at this point in his life, Orwell was mostly about seduction as opposed to romance. Most likely because he had spent years outlining and writing portions of it, Orwell was quickly able to complete a novel focused on his time spent in Burma. The main character, clearly fashioned after Orwell himself, is an expat timber merchant living in the vicinity of a remote end of a railway line. Ultimately, he commits suicide as a result of a failed romance with a Westerner living in his vicinity. Along the way, various plot lines involve interactions between the various ethnic groups prevalent during Eric Blair's stint in Burma. Compared to E.M. Foster's A Passage to India, which Orwell would have read while stationed in Asia, 
It contains similar plot lines concerning romance, imperialist and racist attitudes of the British, and a generally flawed society. But Victor Golantz had problems with it stemming from the subject matter and a suspicion that Orwell was depicting real people who might feel libeled by their characterization. Unrest in India was also controversial, and the book, highly critical of British rule, was also deemed too hot of a topic to discuss. Fortunately, Orwell's agent was able to get the book published in the United States, as well as a French translation of Down and Out. And with his newfound stature, Orwell regularly contributed literary criticism and reviews that made 1934 the first year he was able to support himself as a writer. He quit his teaching job and never returned to the profession. Orwell also relocated to London, eventually finding a residence above a bookstore run by a quirky couple who were friends with his equally quirky Aunt Nellie. October of 1934 brought the American publication of Burmese Days, but uneven reviews and tepid sales greeted the novel, making its British publication even more unlikely. Above the bookstore, Orwell began his next novel, entitled A Clergyman's Daughter, a book so experimental he eventually decided he did not even want it to be reprinted and admitted that he never would have published it had he not needed the money. But it did receive positive critical reviews, and his publisher Golantz also finally agreed to release Burmese Days in Britain in June of 1935. Although by now a professional writer, Orwell had to leave his bookstore lodging for another room on Parliament Hill, located and even subsidized by Mabel Fears. During this time period, Orwell completed another semi-autobiographic novel, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, a depressing slice of impoverished life that one reviewer likened to a trip to the dentist. Through his stint at the bookstore, Orwell did expand his social circle, and at a party in March of 1935, he met his future wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, a graduate student completing her master's in psychology at the University College, London. Having studied at Oxford and at one time an aspiring academic, Eileen had a love of literature and intellectual firepower that George Orwell immediately found very attractive. Although he quickly began to discuss marriage, he also confessed that he was so broke he couldn't even afford an engagement ring. He would also continue sleeping with other girlfriends from his bookshop employment days, even after his eventual proposal. Despite three published novels, Orwell seemed stagnated after three similarly dreary tales of lower-class, melodramatic struggle. When he attempted to coax an advance from his publisher, Golantz insisted that he revisit the themes from Down and Out in London and Paris. In 1936, Great Britain was not immune to the economic depression that had descended upon the Western world. Rampant unemployment in industrial Great Britain was reaching catastrophic proportions, and the struggles of the lower class to survive could no longer be ignored. This request from his publisher also coincided with a conscious decision on Orwell's part to focus on writing as advocating a political perspective, in his case that of democratic socialism. He made plans to reassume his tramp identity and began to plan an itinerary through the manufacturing centers of the northern region of the country. He and Eileen agreed to get married when she completed her master's in June of 1936. Besides 500 pounds advanced for expense money by his publisher, Orwell was motivated by the potential of publication by what was known as the Left Book Club. 
started by an alliance of politicians and publisher Golantz in 1936. This organization promoted leftist causes by offering selected books for its members as well as a newsletter. Wildly popular, it had 40,000 members in its first year of existence and would provide Orwell with an exponentially larger potential audience, generating much larger sales and visibility. Despite terrible weather, Orwell set out for Coventry by rail in January of 1936. He gave up his London apartment and bookstore job without much of a plan for where he would eventually live. After arriving in Coventry, he walked or took buses to various towns and cities within Lancashire and Yorkshire, eventually concluding his journey in the town of Wigan, an industrial spot within Greater Manchester. Here he stayed in a rooming house maintained by the Brooker family, with conditions that were so unsanitary, cramped, and appalling that even Orwell, a journalist in search of such sensationally abysmal surroundings, could barely tolerate it almost reaching a breaking point when confronted by a full chamber pot left under the breakfast table. Orwell kept very detailed notes throughout his journey, describing the bedroom he shared with three other men at the Brooker's establishment as having the odor of a ferret's cage. Mr. Brooker also maintained a filthy and insect-infested tripe shop in the front of the rooming house. His permanently ill wife spent her days under a blanket, perched on a sofa in the subterranean kitchen. Orwell stuck it out at the tripe shop rooming house for two weeks, also intent on observing the coal mines in the vicinity and the existence of the miners who worked there. From Wigan, he continued to Liverpool and the oppressive conditions on the docks and then to Sheffield and steel factories belching fire and black smoke across a hellish landscape. Of the various individuals, even those who identified as socialists or communists, Orwell was not impressed. Later he would write, you have all the time the sensation of kicking against an impenetrable wall of stupidity. Orwell did not want to return to London and instead decided to rent a cottage in the hamlet of Wallington, only 35 miles north of the capital, but rural and isolated from any public transportation. Orwell was thrilled with the bucolic setting, which was perfect for a writer, and he was eager to plant a fruit and vegetable garden, tend to the hens and goats that came with the place, reopen the country store that had recently closed, and quickly finish his latest project. The house was nicknamed The Stores from its occasional status as a grocery. However, the out-of-the-way location meant that his fiancée Eileen would have to abandon any plan she had to begin a career as a child psychologist. Instead, she assumed the role of housekeeper, which in the 300-year-old cottage was a formidable proposition. The only water came from an outside faucet. There was no indoor plumbing. Lighting was by candle or oil lamp. Heating and cooking was on a small stove. As the chimney was blocked, no fire was possible, which meant cold temperatures in the fall and winter months. But the rent of seven shillings, six pence a week, less than a half of a 1936 pound, was another main draw for the couple. They did reopen the country store, which sold non-perishable essentials, stamps, and its most popular item, penny candy for the local children. As most local residents did their shopping in the nearby town of Baldock, sales were minimal but still managed to cover the weekly rent. In June, Orwell and Eileen revealed their wedding plans to their relatives. The ceremony subsequently took place a few days later in a nearby ancient church, and the reception, with only parents and siblings, totaling a wedding party of ten. 
the groom was back to work on his manuscript on the very next day. The book, eventually titled The Road to Wigan Pier, was divided into two sections, the first a physical description of living conditions in the towns that Orwell visited and observed, the second a philosophical political analysis critical of middle-class impostors, socialist in name only, and especially totalitarian Russia. The onset of the Spanish Civil War in July of 1936 gave Orwell even a greater impetus to finish this book. He had already decided that, unlike some within his socialist peer group, he was a man of action, obligated to go to Spain to take up arms against fascism. He turned in his manuscript and left his wife in rural habitat for the chaos of Barcelona. Through connections with the International Labor Party, he was able to secure a letter of introduction that would serve as a recommendation. The ILP consisted of left-wing British expats aligned with the Spanish POUM, or United Marxist Workers' Party. Although Marxist, the POUM, was anti-Stalinist, as was the ILP, an important distinction as the USSR was attempting to co-opt the leftist cause in Spain and install only pro-Soviet communists in control of the anti-fascist struggle. Unfortunately, Orwell remained unaware of these subtleties, and when he told his ILP contact in Barcelona that he wanted to enlist, his wish was granted. Assigned to a platoon of 30 poorly equipped, mostly teenage Catalonians, he soon found himself at the front, 200 miles from Barcelona, in the mountains, the days in the trenches boring and the nights freezing. Within weeks, Orwell was reassigned to a newly arrived unit consisting solely of British recruits, but his service remained uneventful drudgery. At home, Eileen, assigned responsibility for any developments concerning Orwell's publishing, was informed by Golantz that the road to Wigan Pier had been selected for the left-wing book club, a status that eventually propelled it to sales of over 40,000 copies in its book club edition alone. This success even increased Orwell's stature in the eyes of his ILP compatriots, but it also eventually brought heightened scrutiny from less sympathetic political adversaries. With publishing details taken care of, Eileen brought George's Aunt Nellie to Wallington to take care of the stores and set out for Barcelona herself. Eileen Blair had secured a position within the ILP's main Barcelona office, helping to produce an English version of the POUM's newspaper, the Spanish Revolution. She was able to briefly visit her husband at the front, bringing him cigars and chocolate, luxuries in a unit that was poorly equipped. Her husband continued to participate in a boring stalemate, occasionally interrupted by unfocused military action, neither side gaining territory or even inflicting casualties. It was Orwell's intent to get to Madrid and to sign on with the International Brigade, despite warnings from his ILP comrades that his Soviet-backed military unit would not tolerate anti-Stalinist and anti-communist rhetoric. His ILP commanders also did not wish to lose someone of Orwell's stature and presumed that he would convince others to join the International Brigade. After months on the front lines, Orwell and his comrades were granted liberty in Barcelona. Unbeknownst to either Orwell or his wife, they had already become the targets of Soviet surveillance, as Moscow had ordered the destruction of all anarchist and Trotskyite elements of the non-Stalinist left. The POUM and the ILP were high-profile targets of this effort, and Orwell, 
after the road to Wigan Pier's scathing takedown of communism and the Soviet Union was of special interest. During Orwell's leave, fighting broke out between these various elements and thousands of communist troops, transferred from other Spanish regions, eventually aggressively took over Barcelona and the Catalan province, ousting the POUM and any other non-Stalinist factions. Pro-Stalinist elements spread propaganda, claiming that the POUM was openly collaborating with the fascists, a lie that further disillusioned Orwell over the entire conflict. Orwell returned to the front in a reorganized unit commanded by non-communists. On May 20th, as he carelessly stood upright in the trenches, he was shot through the throat by a fascist sniper's bullet. Initially believed to be mortally wounded, Orwell was transferred to a field hospital, his carotid artery barely intact, a vocal cord and right arm paralyzed. Eventually, he was deposited in a POUM hospital on the outskirts of Barcelona. By the middle of June, he had recovered substantially and was in the process of procuring his medical release from the POUM when the Republican government openly moved to suppress any anti-Stalinist elements in the vicinity of Barcelona. Eileen Blair's hotel room was raided, but she was not arrested. Most likely, authorities were waiting for her husband to appear before they arrested both of them. The head of the POUM, Andre Nin, was kidnapped by elements of the NKVD transported to Madrid, tortured, and subsequently executed. Several other prominent political figures were also executed, and numerous others were jailed. Orwell and his wife were able to secretly leave Barcelona and reached France by train, their narrow escape underlining the chaos they left behind. The entire experience served to permanently harden Orwell's revulsion towards Stalin and Soviet communism. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about George Orwell. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books George Orwell by Gordon Boker and Orwell, Wintry Conscience of a Generation by Jeffrey Myers. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.